Well, we're about to start in a new series, and we, we tend to, to work through different books of the Bible, and I, I would say we lean more heavily New Testament. Well, we're going to spend a little bit of time in the, the Old Testament working through the book of Job. And we're not going to go chapter by chapter, but hit on some, some big ideas and some big themes working through that book and excited to do that. We're working through, kind of, uh, kind of wrestling through what's a, a good title for this, this series and just talking to, to Stephanie uh, this past week. And she was, say, she was saying, you know, it almost seems like Job was blindsided. I was like, yeah. That'll work. That'll preach. And, uh, and, so, and so I was thinking of that, that, that word blindsided, and maybe you, as you reflect through your life, maybe there's been seasons that you've gone through, that there's something that came along, everything was just going smoothly, everything going great, and you're just like blindsided by this circumstance or this event or this happening. It was like literally a punch to the jaw. Can some of us bring up an illustration. We could do an open mic and probably have something to share each one of us. I was thinking of that as it relates to being punched in the jaw. Um, I was in high school, and this is uh, pre, pre-Adrian, uh, PA, if you will, uh, and, and uh, was uh, actually a, a girl that I was interested in was walking with her home from school. It was very romantic, I'm sure, and, but I did know in the back of my mind that she had a college-age boyfriend that I just tried to pretend that she didn't have. Well, one day that kind of caught up to me at the local rec center where this gentleman came up to me and warned me to stay away from his girlfriend, which I uh, listened to. And as he was finished, I, I was like, well, that wasn't so bad as he was just finishing giving this warning. He turned away, but then he came back with a lower Mike Tyson uppercut Caught me in the jaw. Like you ever heard the expression? There's gonna be two punches: one me hitting you, and two you hitting the ground. That was me. Like I, I was, I was laid, laid out flat by this dude. I didn't see it coming, and uh, yeah, that sets up this idea of blindsided. Now, so, some of you, some of you though, as I joke about that story, wish that your story was just a punch to the jaw. You know. Like if, if we're real in this room, the, the degree of things that we've experienced, the degree of things that we've suffered through, whether it's a loss of someone we love, whether it's a health issue, whether it's a financial related thing, broken relationship, all of us can relate with the story of Job. All of us can relate with the story of Job from some degree or another. And what's the natural progression I've noticed is the thing that we move to so quickly when we've gone through a trial or a circumstance, we often move so fast into asking the question, why? Why did this happen? Why me? What what did I do to deserve it? Uh, uh, Why why is God allowing this to happen? And the scary thing, though, in asking that question, so often we come to the wrong conclusions. I was reading this story of a, of a man who is actually just recovering in the hospital from a heart attack and just coming in and out of consciousness. He sees his faithful wife right by his side and was just blown away by that. And so just in his soft, struggling voice says to, says to her, he says, when I, when I got fired from my job, you were there. When I lost my business, you were there. When, I lost, when we lost the house, you were there. When I had this heart attack, you were there. You know... I think you're just bad luck. <laughs> you, you see, you can come to 
That'll set in later. You can, you can come to the wrong conclusions when you ask the question why. Too, too often, it's from our limited perspective, our limited vantage point, we come to all the wrong conclusions. And that's what we're going to see in the story of Job. He had all of his buddies along his side trying to come to desperately answer this question. And what I would suggest, this book never, ever necessarily answers the question why. But what it does do is it pulls us up to a 10,000-foot view of God and the bigger picture. Shows us. And so often, I found even in my own life, when I step away from my circumstances, when I start to look at, through it, at it through the lens of the bigger picture, man, that helps so much. So I'm excited to see what God's going to teach us through this, this book study. And uh, let me pray before we dive into chapter 1. God, thank you so much for this chance to be together, and I'm not naive enough to think that in this room, this isn't a tender topic. There's some people that are even in the middle of responding to being blindsided. There's some people that are still recovering from being blindsided. There's some people still trying to work through and ask some of those tough questions. I pray that you'd meet people exactly where they're at, that my words wouldn't get in the way, but your spirit would directly mend and heal and touch hearts like only you can do in this room we invite you to be present through this whole series just active and working we submit it to you now in the strong name of jesus amen so we're going to be looking at chapter one in our bibles of job and if you don't have a bible you're welcome to use one in the chair in front of you if you don't own a bible you're welcome to take one of those if you can find one we ordered some new ones i think lots of people are doing that taking them uh which is good uh, we're going to work through actually just six verses this morning, verses 6 through 12, this throne room scene. But before we get into those six verses, I thought I'd give just a little backdrop to this book so we have some grasp on what's happening, what's going on behind the scenes. First off, just some, some common questions to answer. Author, the funny thing on this one is we're not exactly sure. Some would propose Moses, Some a, a lot of different theories on this, but... I don't like to get weeded in, uh, get uh, lost in the weeds of speculation. Same thing with the date, not exactly sure. The one thing we do know that it's divinely inspired because it's quoted both in the New Testament and Old Testament. And right out of the gates, we're introduced to the main uh, human character in the story, the man named Job. And Job, some people would debate, oh, this is just a fictitious story. But the hard thing to do with that idea is often, both in the New Testament and Old Testament, one in Ezekiel 14.14, he's listed alongside of Noah and Daniel and other faithful uh, followers as as just in the list of of other people we've embraced as real people. And the same thing in James 5.11, it refers to uh, his faithful uh, perseverance as if he were a man. So I, w- I would say that we're pretty safe to say that this is a true story uh, based on even that. What we learned in the first five verses that he's a successful rancher with thousands of animals and many servants. He would be pretty successful in that time. He lived in the land of Uz, not the land of Oz. Likely, most, uh, uh, most would say that that would be in the area south, southeast of the Dead Sea. You could see that on a map yourself. He's known for being a good dad. It refers to him having seven sons and three daughters. That's stressful enough. He was committed to, he was committed to praying for them and making 
I thought it was interesting, making burnt offerings based on even their potential sins. We don't know exactly the reason behind that. Maybe he knew something that's not outlined in the story here. But the most noteworthy thing we learn about him is in literally the first verse, the second half. It says this, you can see it on the screen there. That man, referring to Job, was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Love that description of him. First off, let's recognize the word blameless is not the same as the word sinless. So blameless, we even learned in December as we're studying the story of Simeon, is referring to his standing before God. That in the same way that today our faith is what is determines, our, our trust in God is what determines whether or not we're blameless or not before God. It was the same thing true about him. In fact, Job goes on to talk as he's describing himself, refers to his sins often in this book. And so he's being clear on that, the same thing that saves us today, putting faith in God. At that point, not everything had been revealed that we have revealed currently about God, but he was trusting in what he did know. His faith was evident in two things, one, a fear of God, and then turning away from evil. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. It actually moved into his actions, the way in which he lived. So that's a little backdrop of who we're dealing with. Main uh, human character is Job in the story, and we're about to enter in and see a couple other key players. If you'll glance down with me at verse 6 in chapter 1. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Stop there just for a moment just to give some degree of explanation. First off, the sons of God is actually a term you're referring to and used often to refer to angelic beings, both fallen and faithful. We're introduced here to another key player in the story, the the, the being named Satan. If you know anything about that, I think most of us would be familiar with Satan. Satan is a fallen being, actually the first of the angels to fall. You see, angels were created just like man with free will, where they had the choice to either follow God and be in relationship with him, or to go their own way. Satan made the choice in his own pride to go his own way and led thousands of angels along with him that we now would call demons. He went from being having the name of Lucifer, which means star of the morning, sounds pretty cool, and is now known as Satan, which actually means the accuser, the accuser. Revelations 12.9 tells us that after he rebelled against God, he was cast from heaven to earth where he has existed since then to deceive much of mankind and set up his kingdom here on earth. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So this is the important thing to understand that I'm getting to in this section is that where the enemy lives... Part of the importance of of working through our our, our pain and our suffering is to be aware of who we're habitating with, who's living with us on this planet. As we're trying to process and make sense out of our pain, that's a key component as we're going to see in the text. But I also observe here 
that he's not as often presented a peer of God or someone that he's combating. He's actually a created being subject to God. Remember in the Tom and Jerry cartoons, there's always the cartoon, like the, on one shoulder you had the, the demon or the angel, and the one was, uh, was an angel on the other side, and, and it was kind of this competing as if they were like, you're not sure who's going to win, like who's going to win this time? And you're like, no, actually he's a, creating, he's a created being, but he has been given, and this is important for us to understand, he has been given the ability to be part of the decision-making process we have here on earth to accept or reject God. You see, all the way back from Adam and Eve when man made the, the decision to reject God, that then gave the green light or the pass for Satan to be involved in the believer's life and the non-believer's life. Two different strategies for the non-believer is to do his very best to keep mankind from embracing Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. In the believer's life, to keep them distracted and on the sidelines and damaged so that they have zero impact as much as possible. So he's actively working. I love that God asks him, so what have you been up to? What are you, what are you doing? Look at Satan's response. Satan answered the, as if God didn't know. Satan answered the, the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. I like that description there. It almost it sounds like if you ask a teenager what they're doing at the mall, they're like, ah, just hanging out, just going up and down, you know, doing, doing my own thing. But you know there's something more to it than just that. You know they're, they're, they're up to no good or something. And, and here, here is the little bit clearer picture we find in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he's not innocently walking around and doing his thing. He's literally looking for who he's going to take out next who he's going to deceive, who he's going to get off track. So he's actively working behind the scenes. How do I know that? Well, Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when... We're trying to make sense out of our pain. Know that we're dwelling with what? We're on a planet with both fallen demonic beings and we're on a planet with fallen human beings. People that are shocked with some of the, the pain and suffering that they experience. They watch the news and they're like, how could all this happen? I would suggest we should maybe ask the question, how's anything good happening on this planet? That's maybe the more appropriate question to ask. So I wanted to just pause there to point out to know who your neighbors are. That's an important thing to know. You want to know who you're living with. So moving on, the text as we continue in the throne room scene here is this. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? continue there in a second but just the first observation is he's like hey let's let's cut through the the chase here you're not just walking around you're looking for somebody to pick on so he's suggesting somebody which is kind of a scary thought have you considered my servant job that there's none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man who fears god and turns away 
from evil. What an awesome description that is. What a beautiful picture. I don't know if you've ever had someone that you're talking to and you're having trouble making conversation with them and you're kind of fishing for topics that might catch their interest and get a response more than a yes or no, a nod or a grunt. Anybody have one of those conversations before? And you finally hit the button of something that they're passionate about or interested in talking about. Have you guys ever had that with somebody? And you're like, yes, I found the sweet spot. I don't have to do all the talking now. And, uh, and, and so you have the, these interactions. And I, I'd like to suggest that that's when you're getting to where God's heart is, the thing that he loves to gush over, the thing that he loves to talk about, really is us, his kids. Kids, you're going to ask me, what's, the, what's my favorite thing to talk about? Like, I used to suggest maybe cars and stuff like that. But man, as I've been a dad longer, if I'm honest with myself, I love just talking about my kids. Yeah, I love talking about the, the goofy things they do, the stories behind the scenes that they're doing. I like, I like, I like talking about the weird quirks that my, uh, that my daughter Alexa has with her type A personality, my son's soft heart for, for people that are struggling, my, uh, my little Sienna with kind of her carefree spirit. Like, you know what I mean? Like Each one of your kids like, has like a, a different aspect that you're like, fascinated with and love to talk about. Why? Because you're crazy about them. Because you love them. Like, that's, that's our, our, our big deal. And what I want us to observe and why this is important when we're working through understanding our pain is we have to have that foundation of, man, I know that I have a God that's crazy about me. It, it, it completely destroys this picture of an angry God up there with a club. You see, it, it, it dispels that myth and points to the fact he's not, he's not nitpicking, but he's also not an absentee dad either. Like, he's very aware of what's going on with Job. He knows that he's resisting sin. He knows that he has, has a healthy fear of him. He, know, he knows these things about him. But then he celebrates them before he even has a chance to be asked the question of whether or not he can be attacked. I, I, I like to think just or wonder about what he would say about me or what he would say about you. What things would he highlight? What things would he celebrate? Which things would he point to? Because before, you, before him, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're considered blameless. So that allows him to focus on, on the good stuff. What would he say about you? How would he celebrate you? You almost feel like, you, based on the rest of the story, you prefer that he would have stayed quiet. But, uh, but here looking at verse 9, Satan's response. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has and on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Wow, pretty deceptive, just crazy talk there. At first, when we read this, let's be honest with ourselves. Reading about this scene is kind of a hard one to swallow. Like, if we're being honest with ourselves, this is, this is kind of like, really? Like, Satan gets a chance to go before God and, and suggest people that he can maybe pick on or mess with? Like, is that how it works? Like, is there, is there stuff? You think about this. Job's completely oblivious to this conversation. He has no idea this is happening. Is there the possibility that there's things happening in the spiritual realm that we just have no idea about? You almost start to feel like, wait a second, are we, are we maybe just like 
pawns on a chessboard? And, and wait a second, is this story maybe not about us? Dun, 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 dun. Is, there, is maybe this about God and his glory? Am I maybe not the key? Fo- and, and people are like, ah, oh, I don't like the sound of that. Chad and I were talking this week about the fact that certain cultures have more of a potential by different sections of Scripture to be offended. I would suggest, I would suggest that this idea that this life doesn't revolve around me is probably one of the hardest ones for our Western culture to embrace. Why? Why, why don't we like that idea that it's something bigger going on? I'm not the key. The, because it goes against what we've been told since we were born. So we, 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 we're, we're products of an environment that's constantly feeding us to this lie that it's all about you. Here's your participation trophy. It's all about you. Uh, you deserve a break today. It's all about you. Buy this self magazine. It's all about you. Like we've been told, we've been sold a bill of goods, and it's just not biblical. It's just not biblical. We're not the main character of the story. And for us, as we're working through pain and trying to make sense out of it, that's helpful to understand. That's helpful to understand that there's more to it than we can fully grasp. That's why Paul even said to this in Romans 9.21, he says, Has the potter no right over the clay? He recognized that there's a major gap between us, our thoughts, and God's thoughts. Our understanding, our ways and his ways. It's actually referred to in Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Referring to the God. And my thoughts than your thoughts. This is a description of how it works. If you've ever looked through the, uh, seen a video or something of the Hubble telescope and you see the expanse of the universe and you start thinking like, oh, that's the gap between my thoughts and his thoughts? Like, I don't, I don't like that idea that there's stuff I don't know. There's stuff I don't understand. There's pieces I don't see. I was listening to a message by uh, Francis Chan. I don't know if you've heard of him before, author and uh, great pastor. He was talking, telling one time of an example that he used in a, in a sermon where he, he, pulled, he pulled out for the sermon one of those transparency projectors, you know, the, the old school ones. Anybody been around church world enough to remember those? Like the, the light thing, you set it up in front of the screen, you set down the clear transparency. And he had this idea, he said he was, kind of, he was in a, a larger arena with a lot of people there. And he says, so he had in there, he was trying to make this illustration of there's a lot more going on than we realize it. And he had in there, he had a clear cup, and he had in that cup a bunch of roly-polies, a bunch of roly-polies. You know what the little roly-poly bugs are that I described? Uh, I don't think that's the proper name. There's probably another name for them, but uh, who cares? Uh, but but e- either, way, either, either way, he took the cup, he turned it over on the transparency, and you can see him under the cup, still confined, just go- going around. And he says, listen, guys, I want you to choose which bug you think is going to get off the projector once I take the cup off. And the crowd, man, he's like, he's like, I couldn't believe how into it these grown adults were. And he takes the cup off, and the whole place goes crazy. Like everybody cheering for their bug and cheering, going crazy. 
And here's these little roly-polies just going around, just heading towards the, heading towards the light, you know, just completely clueless to the fact of what, that there's thousands of people cheering their little bug name going on, that there's more than they could actually see. And his point was this, maybe we're the roly-polies. Some of us after Christmas maybe feel like that. But, uh, but maybe, maybe, maybe we're just here doing our thing, headed to, uh, towards the light. We have no idea why. We're just kind of, I'm going to work. I'm getting in the car, going home, eating a meal, watching TV, do it again. You know, like we're just, do, we're just doing our thing. And God's like, oh, there's so much more to this than you understand. There's so much more. I think in understanding our pain, it's important to recognize there's a lot more that our little minds don't even grasp. Another pastor by the name of Levi Lusco said this. He says, the issue isn't whether your life is going well or falling apart. The question is, what makes you, think, what makes you so sure you can tell the difference? Things are seldom as they appear. Again, the question is, what makes you so sure you can tell the difference? See, there's something bigger here. And in this throne room scene, you see that Satan's doing what he does best. He's accusing. What's his accusation that he's making? He's saying to them, basically, Job is only faithful because you've been super good to him. He's surrounded with cush stuff. You have a hedge of protection around him. You've blessed all of his efforts. Man, you take that away and he's going to curse you to your face. That's what he's saying. He's, he's saying that that whole relationship was a sham. The whole relationship was a sham. It was based solely on what one person could receive from another. Basically questioning, even at the root of that, whether or not God's worthy of relationship and dependent of what he's done or does for us. So he's setting the gauntlet. He's creating this, the, the, this tension there that, wait a second, is there authenticity in that relationship? If you think about it, Satan really has two weapons that he uses in our lives to distract or to steal our joy. One he's already tried with Job. The first one is pleasure so that we think God is unneeded. That's strategy one, number one. Sometimes he just allows people to be blessed for things to go great so that all of a sudden you get going doing your own thing and you're like, I don't really need God. I don't really need him. He already tried that with Job, but Job still feared God and fled evil. So what's option number two? Option, uh, okay, the pleasure thing isn't working. How about the pain thing? How about the pain thing that ca causes us to conclude that God is powerless or cruel, or unconcerned. That's the other option. He moves between the two often in our life, causing us to, oh, question God. Where did God go? Why does he not care about me anymore? Why is it uh, uh, provoking all of these why questions in our life? So he moves from that question, and it's important that we remember that as we're dealing with questions about our pain. Verse 12 God grants permission to test Job. He says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Wow. Wow. This request 
to test Job was presented and accepted. How could God do this? How could God allow that? Why would, why would he do that to his kid, the guy he was just bragging on just recently? I would suggest we don't know. We don't know for sure. But we do know a few things. A few things, and that's what's so important, is that we cling to what we do know. The thing that we do know, what we do know is that saving faith will stand the test of trials. Saving faith will stand the test of trials. In other words, when we're rooted in the Lord, when we're deeply committed to Him, it stands the test of the worst junk that could happen to us. We could share story after story after story of examples of this, but even think about the words in Romans 8.35 when Paul asks that question. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? And he answers his own question in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, recognizing that he's not going to abandon us during our time of trial and need. He's not promising that things are going to be rosy. He's not trying to kind of do the bait and switch thing and, and oh, I thought things were going to be great. And he's like, no, I'm telling you clearly that I'm going to be there for you. And how often on the other side of our trials we come out, man, a deeper relationship with him, more of a dependence on him, more of an more of a, 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 a intimacy that, that was never there before that trial. So the question is, do all, are all of our trials tests? Well, maybe, kind of. I would suggest so. I put in your notes some other possibilities. We see God uses different trials or suffering for a number of different reasons. So a couple of these, you can do your own study, just looking up these different passages if you're trying to make sense out of some trial. Sometimes it's to punish sin. Sometimes it's to discipline a follower. Sometimes it's to strengthen. Sometimes it's to reveal his comfort and grace. Sometimes, like we're seeing here, it's to fulfill heavenly purposes that we can't discern or make sense out of. There's a whole variety of things, routes that we can go. And it's not this idea that God's trying to hide this idea to us. I like John MacArthur says, God is not trying to protect himself from the idea that he might actually have a purpose for evil. He's not trying to protect himself from that idea. He's saying, listen, I use pain and suffering. It was part of the curse. We were told that we we're going to be, have Satan nipping at our heels. That was part of the deal. We shouldn't be shocked by it. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. It's a guarantee. It's almost a sign that you might be headed in the right direction. You're like, man, if things are getting really hard, that means like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm going the right way. Because who does the enemy want to target? He's like, man, I'm targeting the righteous man. I'm going after the, the person that's having an impact. I'm going after the person that's pursuing a relationship with God. And so we shouldn't be shocked by that. But all of it is a test for us to recognize what are we putting our trust in? Are we going to trust in his character? Trust in the fact that he's greater than all this. Trust in the fact, I mean, he's got your best interest in mind. He wants to gush over you. He's the loving father. 
We're going to learn a lot in this series as it goes, as it relates to the above big picture view. But my hope is, coming out of this, that we'd see some of these different details. Now listen, we're in a big picture that's greater than us. We're in a, on a planet where we're living with the fallen humans and fallen demonic forces. That should answer tons of the questions about what in the heck's going on right there. And, and then lastly, that man, remember in our trial that we have a God that's crazy about us, that wants to brag on us, that wants to celebrate us because of what he's done in our life. I invite up the worship team just in this last song. It's a great reminder of our trust. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this picture that we see of Job that maybe helps a little bit to scratch the surface of making sense out of stuff. But I am also aware that you don't owe us an explanation. Also aware that sometimes things don't play out and we don't see the very full picture until the very end. God, I thank you that you are a God that's trustworthy, that has a track record of that in our lives, the lives of people we know, the lives of people and generations prior to us. You are a faithful and good God. And that's why we put our trust in you, God. That's why we put our hope in you. That's why we still come together and celebrate you, even when we don't know the answer to the question, why? Thank you for your patience with us roly-polies trying to figure it all out. In Jesus' name. I think that really captures it. It's often in our trial, it's really a trust exercise, isn't it? That's what I feel like so often. Well, I wanted to remind us, one of the challenges we had this year was each week we are going to do a different Bible memory verse. If you're here last Sunday, we're going to try to do 52 different verses in the course of this year. And our verse this morning, we're trying to ease into it. We thought we'd start with some you might be familiar with and get, get going a little bit. So this one's Romans 3.23. And let's see who knows this. For all... Nice job. That was about 25% of you. Next week, we're going for a higher percentage. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Take care.